Well, good evening, everyone. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for this gathering. We thank you that we're here in your name. We thank you that you've given us this story. And because of your son, we are now part of this story. So, Father, we ask that you open our minds, our hearts, our spiritual eyes and ears. We invite the Holy Spirit. Please show us what you would have us learn from tonight. Transform our minds, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Do I have it on? Testing? Better? Testing? Is this any better? Anything? Can you hear down here? Okay. Thank you. Mr. Speaker. Is it going to be okay for you guys on this side? Do I sit here? Do you want to sit here? I don't have the microphone. Do you have an empty table right here? Yeah, if anybody wants to come over here. Apologize. I don't know what to do when equipment is not working. So we'll just, Kathy? Yes. Project. Yes. It was so much easier when it was a boat and, and the Sea of Galilee, apparently. Yes. <laughs> if someone were to ask you, what is scripture? How would you answer them? Would you tell them how you felt about it? Would you tell them that it was transforming? Would you be simple and say, it's the word of God? It's such a big topic and an important topic. Sometimes we can confuse the person asking because we just tell them too much about it or maybe not enough. It's the word of God. Oh, okay, well, thanks. So is there a helpful way to answer this question? Well, I think there is. Scripture is first and foremost a revelation. And the reason we have this is a wonderful reason. It's because God wants to be known. There are actually two ways in which God reveals himself. The first is general revelation. Get to that. General revelation tells us there is a God. A great example of general revelation is creation. Paul tells us about this in Romans 1. From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. This is impressive. From the creation, we see there is a being who is both eternal and divine. But it's not very personal. So the second type of revelation is called special revelation, and that refers to the specific. It tells us there is a God, and we can know him. Special revelation, as we learned, is primarily redemptive, but it's also personal. God knows our dilemma. 
So from the beginning, he chose to reveal himself in a more direct way. And he does this by speaking and acting in human history. His words and activity are recorded in scripture. Scripture, therefore, is a great example of special revelation. In Exodus, we learn the Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, rich in unfailing love and faithfulness. The creation can't tell us that, but scripture can. So does it matter that we do what we do here at the academy? We spend time to learn the historical and cultural context. Well, what about this timeline we keep referring to? And what about the structure? And it matters. It matters for this reason. Because having this knowledge helps us to comprehend what God is revealing to us about himself and why he is revealing it. Remember, God doesn't do anything without a purpose, including his revelation. He does this because he wants something from, what, from us. He wants us to respond to him by loving him and choosing to follow him. So God reveals because he wants us to respond. And we take the time to learn the context, the timeline, the structure, so we can know him more fully. Which brings us to our first activity for the evening. And it's a quiz. Yes? I know you're excited about that. Now, the purpose of the quiz is for you to measure how much you're retaining from, from this group. You've seen the information before. I promise I won't collect it. And I hope it's for your benefit. It's about 15 minutes. It's on your table. It looks something like this, except it doesn't have the answers. There's a front and a back. And to tell you the truth, at the last teacher's meeting, I drew the short straw, so I got to do the quiz. So that's what it is. Pardon? Well, let's see if we could do it apart. Let's see if you could do it on your own. And then at the end, when it's in 15 minutes, then we'll talk about it. So it's the honor system. Uh, well, how to see, not what you wrote, what you retained. <laughs> it's what you retained. <laughs> but I'm not going to collect it. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Looks like everybody's pretty much finishing up. So if you didn't know the information, did you know where to find the information? <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. So what are the 11 time periods represented by the acronym Casket Empty? C. A. S. K. E. T. E. M. P. T. Y. You do great. That's wonderful. Okay, the bonus question about the dates. They're in several places in our books, but on the back of the timeline, they're listed for you concisely for, because you're going to be taking this wherever you go, right? This is your new tool wherever you go. All right, and then which of the periods does not have a date? So in one word, what is the central unifying theme of scripture establishing and defining God's relationship to humans in all ages? Covenant, yes, covenant. <clears throat> That's okay. I taught that a couple weeks ago. I'm not taking it personally. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Can you name at least four of the major covenants? We'll start with one. 
No egg. Thank you. Is, was that your answer? No egg. Yes. Th thank you. Thank you, Neil. Anyone else? Abraham. 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 Moses. Moses. David. David. Excellent. They're, they are the four major ones. Wonderful. Now, we have separated the books of both the Old and New Testament into the same three categories. We call them coat hangers. Who can name those three categories? Thank you. Thank you, Liam. Excellent. So for our homework, we had five books that we looked at. What is Second Chronicles? History. History. Jeremiah. Joel. Matthew. Acts. Excellent. Okay. True or false? The instructional books, the prophets and the epistles, do they move the redemptive story forward? False. Amplify. There you go. Excellent. Excellent. That's right. I like that. So during the United Kingdom, there were three kings. Who were they and from what tribe did they come from? Who was the first one? From? Second? From? Third? From? Look what you know. This is awesome. The United Kingdom was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was known as? And the southern? When did Solomon die? 930. 930 BC. I know dates are not things that we really love, but there's a couple of major dates that we should know, and that's one of them, and I'll tell you why in a few moments. But 930 BC is a major date in our story. Last week we talked about a king who brought about the greatest reform in the southern kingdom. Who was it? And what was the significant discovery? Excellent. Do you feel empowered? Great job. Wonderful. Well, tonight brings us to the close of the period of the kings, which means after tonight, we have covered four of the periods. So we're going to open our timelines to kings, which is three panels in our um, timeline, and we'll refer to it uh, quite a bit tonight as we go through the, the story of the kings. After Solomon's death, which happened what year? Okay. There was trouble in the kingdom. First was the spiritual problem. Solomon had many wives and concubines who brought their idols and their idol worships with them. And what does God feel about idolatry? He hates it. Exactly. Second, there's a political problem. At this time, Israel had sort of a civil engineering corps or a civil army. You see, all the building that was going on during the peacetime under Solomon needed a large labor force to maintain it. The captain of the civil army was Jeroboam. After Solomon died, Jeroboam goes to his heir, Rehoboam, no relation, he's Solomon's son. And he says to him, in essence, you need to lighten up. Your father was just too hard on the civil army. Rehoboam says, I really don't care what you think. And not only that, I intend to be harsher with the army. Not a diplomat, was he? And unfortunately, 
Jeroboam didn't enjoy that answer. He and his army rebelled, and the nation splits. How many nations of Israel did God form? Okay, and man created how many? Two. Okay, so let's look at the timeline. In our first panel of the kings, we'll look at it vertically. And we see Saul, David, and Solomon, three kings, start of the period is 1050, it ends at 930. 120 years and three kings. That's as far as the United Monarchy went. Remember, we want a king, we want a king, we want to be like everybody else. And strife has come in. So after Solomon's death, the kingdom splits. It's now the divided kingdom. The top line are the kings of the northern kingdom. And there are about 19 kings in this line. Do you remember how many of these kings served the Lord and did what was right? Zero. Zero. Awesome. Yes, that's correct. Well, that's not awesome, but knowing it's awesome. Okay. In the southern kingdom, we have the blue line going across horizontally. There are 20 kings. Of those 20 kings, only about six will do what's right. So tonight, if you don't mind, I would appreciate a lot of readers. We're going to read off the timeline, and we're going to read scripture. So let's take a look at those six kings. Let's see the bullet points of what they've done so we can assess. Would somebody take a look at Asa next to Rehoboam? There's four bullet points ahead of him. Would somebody please read what he did in his reign? Yes, thank you. The next one is right below him, Jehoshaphat. Would you read what he does? Thank you. Uh, Jehoshaphat, you said? Yes. Thank Alliance you. Alliance with Ahab, religious reforms, appoints judges, Levites, priests, trusts God, still pagan religion. Thank you. We move over on the timeline, the second line, over to Uzziah. What does he do? Builds up kingdom, Judah's golden age, still pagan religion. Thank you. And then we move over and up one to Jotham. What does he do? So four of the six kings partially reformed what was going on. And when you have the pagan religion still that influential, you may remember this from your reading, it's syncretism. They just seep into each other. They don't typically stay separate. So this is what's going on. Okay, so then we move over to the top line again to Hezekiah. What do we see under Hezekiah or over Hezekiah? What did he do? Yes. Removes high places, cleanses temple, restores Passover and worships. Trust God. Thank you. And then we go to the next bottom line, over a couple to Josiah. That was our king from last week. What does he do? Covenant renewal. Removes the mediums, the witchcraft, and the spiritualists. Tears down the altars. Destroys the idols. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.
if you guys don't mind when you're reading, just raise your hand. We'll bring the microphone so that the people who aren't here can, we can capture those comments. Thank you. So notice also on the timeline, there are several names in red. Who are they? The prophets. I have a question. Why do you think there is so much prophetic activity during the time of the kings? Who would like to answer that? God sent, okay, God sending warnings. Their conduct isn't good. They need help. Yes. Anyone else? Rebellion. Rebellion. These are great answers. Yes, Liam. Pagan relationships. Yes. Pardon? Hope. Yes. Hope. Hope. That's another one. Yes. Hope, too. So notice this. The rise of the prophets coincides with the rise of the monarchy. That's not a coincidence. And God is doing everything you said. He's calling them to repentance. Turn back to me, he's saying. Six out of 39 kings over 300 years. That's who served him. And we saw four didn't fully either. Well, the northern kingdom, as you rightly said, rejects the message of the prophets. And they will be defeated by the Assyrians. And where you see that on your timeline is the end of the gray bar at the top, the fall of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians will take over Samaria in 722 BC. That's our second important date this week. 930 BC, 722 BC. That is the end of the northern kingdom. So we return now to one kingdom. And going forward, this kingdom can be known as Judah and now Israel. So because the prophets are so profound during this area, let's talk about them for just a minute. Think of the prophets as the scripture of the Old Testament because they speak for God. They are inspired by God just as scripture is inspired by God. And you know who tells us that? Peter. Would somebody please read this verse? Above all, you must understand that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophets themselves or because they wanted to prophesy. It was the Holy Spirit who moved the prophets to speak from God. Thank you. Now, they typically covered three main points. The prophets are calling the people and telling them to repent. They warn the people of future judgment if they don't repent. And in spite of all this, they still give a message of future hope and restoration. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the prophets always have a message of restoration and hope? It, it was in the quiz. Because God does. Yes. Excellent. God does. Yes. Anything else? Covenants. Covenants. The God who established the covenants is going to see that they're fulfilled. Remember, this is his story, too, that he's moving forward. Now, John the Baptist is actually an Old Testament prophet. He had the privilege of proclaiming that the Messiah, the one that everyone was waiting for in Judah, is imminent. He's coming. And what does he tell the people to do? He's doing his job. He's a prophet. This week, our story takes us to the eve of destruction for Judah, as seen through the eyes of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was born 
during the later reign of Manasseh. And as your timeline will show you, he was one of the most evil kings. It's in this context that Jeremiah spent his youth in a society in which religious and social evil were advancing. And around 640 BC, Manasseh's heir Josiah becomes king. And as we saw last week, he offered hope. So let's do a review of this king. Would somebody please read 2 Chronicles? Thank you. Then, in the twelfth year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines and astropoles, and the carved idols and cast images. Thank you. So he initiated massive reforms in both religious and social practices of the nation. It was during this reformation that God called Jeremiah to be his prophet. And as we know, there was a major discovery during this time, as you all said, the book of the law. And this both intensified and accelerated the reform. During Jeremiah's tenure as prophet, there were several kings, but three stand out. The first one we talked about, Josiah, a good king. But look at the timeline. The next king is next to him in terms of, of a major factor, named Jehoiakim. What do we see about him on the timeline? Azim. And then the third major king under his reign is Zedekiah. What do we learn about him? What else does your timeline tell you about Zedekiah? Yes, he is the last king. He has that distinction. So do you know what that means? Jeremiah will witness, I witness, the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. He's going to see the total destruction of the land that he loves. In the beginning, as we said, Everything was working out pretty well under Jeremiah's ministry. But time went on, and he saw little change in the hearts of the people. Idolatry comes back, cheating, dishonesty. From religious evil comes the social evil of injustice. But Judah was banking on these great pillars of their historical faith. And they're pretty formidable. See, they knew they were the chosen people. They had election. They knew they were in the promised land that God had promised uh, their ancestors centuries ago. Moses received the law. Abraham, they were Abraham's descendant of the covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The temple was right there in Jerusalem. And the monarchy was David's descendant. This is what they were banking on, the externals. Jeremiah's job was to dismantle these pillars as the basis of their security. The future for an unrepented people trusting in falsehood was bleak beyond what the people could believe or even want to hear. They're not tracking with his message at all. They don't want to hear it. In Jeremiah 7, what we, we read this week, he's speaking at the temple. It is a sermon in which Yahweh, through the prophet, lays out a clear case that Judah has broken the law. They have not kept their covenant. But even at this point, something remarkable happens. We see God's magnanimous grace. Yahweh is still willing to forgive them. So would somebody please read verse 3. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Even now, 
If you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. Thank you. Even now. But you see, the people, they're not hearing this message. They're under the misconception that close proximity to the temple is protecting them from judgment. Because remember, in the northern kingdom, they had none of this. David's heir wasn't on the throne. The temple wasn't there. Therefore, the priests weren't there. So they thought, we're, we're golden. But Jeremiah continues. What do we see here in verses 4 and 5? But do, my, do not be fooled by those who repeatedly promise your safety, because the temple of the Lord is here. I will be merciful only if you stop your wicked thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Thank you. And do not be fooled by those who repeatedly promise you safety. Who are they? Who do you think they are? False prophets, thank you. Yes, they're the false prophets. And they're making a good living by telling the people what they want to hear. You know, we have a buzzword in our day, narrative, right? And everybody has a narrative, and we get to choose the narrative we want to listen to. Choosing from more than one narrative or truth is not unique to our time. And just like we do, they want to align themselves with the narrative that suits their purpose. They don't want to hear Jeremiah's message. They want to hear they have the temple, election, law, the monarch, we're fine. But he continues, do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and worship Baal and all those other new gods of yours? In that one verse, every commandment, the Ten Commandments are represented. Stealing, murdering, committing adultery, and lying. These are from the second tablet of the, of the commandments. Those are the regulations that address communal relationships and how to live ethically, and they're not. And how about burning Baal, incense to Baal, and the other new gods? This is prohibited by the first commandment from the first tablet. They're breaking the entire law and how they're living. And here's the thing. The commandments weren't hidden. They were first given to the older generation in the Exodus and then given to the younger generation in Deuteronomy. And what does Deuteronomy mean? Second law. Second law. It's not a new law. It's the same law to a new generation. Then they're put in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, and they follow the people all through their journey. And now they're in the temple. So they know. They know what the law is. And here's what Jeremiah said. Actually, it's the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. And then you come and stand here at the temple, and then you chant, we're safe. You go only right to go back outside and do all those evil things again outside the temple. What are they doing? They're sacrificing their children outside the temple, and they think they can come to worship the Lord, and they believe they're protected. J. Andrew Dearman, in his commentary on Jeremiah, says it well. Taken as a whole, the prophet charges that those attending temple service love neither God nor neighbor according to the standards of the Torah, which we'll call God's narrative. Instead, they grasp at the magical properties of this temple in hopes that God will protect the city against the enemy, the false prophet's narrative. So here's our first discussion question for tonight. 
It's actually our first question from the homework. We were asked to read Jeremiah 7, and in the question in the homework, why do you think the people of Judah believe that they're, the question in the homework is temple, but we're going to add it all. The election, their land, their law, their covenant, the monarch. Why do you think they thought all these things gave them favored status and protection from foreign invasion? And then let's bring it into our day. What are some of our Christian pillars? What do we believe gives us favored status with God? And this could be our traditions, our ministries, our practices. How do we try to win favor with God? So let's take about 10 minutes and then we can share afterwards. Thank you, everyone. Well, I'm curious, what are some of the Christian pillars that you came up with? Would anybody like to share? Yes. What do you think that they are? Thank you, Liam. That's a wonderful pillar. Thank you. Yes, that we're to trust in God completely, and we don't need to do good works to earn salvation. Is that correct? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Thank you, Ashley. Acts over the relationship. Thank you. That's easy to do. Yes. Anyone else? I think we think things like, I have a quiet time every day. So I'm clever. <laughs> quiet time every day is the protection. Great point. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, I, think it, I think at times um, who we listen to or who we follow, sometimes we don't want to do our own homework or just we assume that this person is speaking well and we like what we hear, so we're, we're covered by their wisdom direction. Great point. Covering. Thank you. Yes. And you used to try to do everything right. Well, that gave me favorite status. You know, I was in ministry and, you know, that, of course, you know, made me favored by God. <laughs> and and it, it, it seeps in, doesn't it? You don't wake up saying, I'm going to do this for this, but you start to get that protection, don't you? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. Love, being loving. My dad used to say dogs are better at it than people. Being loving and dogs are, at it, are better at it than people. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. Born right here in America. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> We must know some of the same people. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, yes. For this table, a couple of things came up. Tithing is one. And one of our um, uh, table members knows somebody who believes they're going to heaven because of their grandfather being a minister. Pretty much like what they thought about David. And here it is today, yes. Well, these are great answers. Thank you so much for sharing. Well... Back to Yahweh's indictment. We're still in Jeremiah 7. And would somebody please read the continuation of the sermon? 
There's a lot of reading tonight, so I, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Go to the place at Shiloh, for I once put the tabernacle to honor my name. See what I did there because of all the wickednesses of my people, the Israelites. While you were still doing these wicked things, said the Lord, I spoke to you about it repeatedly, but you would not listen. I called out to you, but you refused to answer. Thank you. And then he continues, just as I destroyed Shiloh, I will now destroy this temple that was built to honor my name. This temple that you trust for help. This place that I gave to you and your ancestors, and I will send you into exile, just as I did your relatives, the people of Israel. So the people of Israel are the northern kingdom, and God refers to them as Judah's relatives. Now, Christopher Wright, in his commentary on Jeremiah, really expounds what's going on with this comparison. What made this comparison even worse for the people of Jerusalem? See, the people of Jerusalem, they like to contrast themselves with, with the people in Shiloh. We have the glory of Jerusalem. You're the rejected Shiloh. For Shiloh was in the hated northern kingdom. So they don't see themselves as relatives the way the Lord does, do they? And God had destroyed and sent them into exile over a century earlier. They were so wicked, and look what happened to them. We, on the other hand, look, what, look at us. We stand in God's favor and blessing because of God's choice of David. Kind of like your friend. My grandfather is a minister. And here's Jeremiah's great message. On the contrary, he says, what happened to Shiloh is precisely what will now happen to the temple in Jerusalem. Judah is doomed to exile, just as the people of Ephraim, Ephraim is another name for Israel, had been. So you know what this means? Judgment is coming. So suppose we took about five minutes at your table. Would you do something for me? Would you define the word passion? Passion. Thank you. What were some of the things or definitions for passion? What are the, what are the synonyms? Anybody? Desire. Desire. Anyone else? Affection. I, affection. I found it easier to find words that describe passion. Okay. Intensity. Intensity. Thank you. Strong-willed. Strong-willed. Commitment. Unquestionable, unconditional Complete commitment, unconditional. These are great. Anyone else? You had, uh, Jonathan said something that overwhelms fully and consumes oh. and words and deeds. Overwhelming and consumes our thought, words, and deeds. These are great. Anyone else? We call that a calling. A calling. Okay. I love that. These are great. Anyone else? Moves your soul, captures imagination, focuses your energy, moves you to action. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Well, these are great. But do you know the root for passion is a Greek verb, pashko, and it means to suffer. In scripture, it refers to Christ's suffering. 
You see, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. But the question that we might ask is, whose tears? There is no question that he wept, he mourned and cried out. But in, in many of the texts, the words of the prophet and God blend together so closely that it's difficult to be sure who the weeping prophet really is. Wright explains, it's not merely that Jeremiah speaks God's words. He also feels God's feelings. And here we are. The most obvious and sustained emotion right now is anger. So why don't we tackle this topic tonight of God's wrath and anger? What do you think? Eventually, we're going to be out talking to people, and they're going to want to know. So I would like to present two arguments from two scholars that I think make a good case that God's wrath is a function of his love. That's me. And they're scholars and they're commentators. They're not scripture. So I'll read their arguments. I'm suggesting that maybe you take a couple notes because our next table discussion is going to be critiquing that argument. The first one, do you think they made the case? Do you think they were successful in saying that God's wrath is really a function of love for his people? And how do you think they fall short? The first one, we're going to go to Christopher Wright, who wrote a um, commentary on Jeremiah. He asks, well, what kind of anger is this? Is it the rage of someone simply lashing out vengefully and anyone who gets in the way? Is it the hot temper of a cosmic bully? Not at all. And it's very important to get this point clear. If you read the text with care and sensitivity and see that the anger of God is the anger of suffering love. It is an anger within a deep relationship that he passionately cares for. It is the anger sodden with grief and pain that wrestles with profound love in the heart of a betrayed husband or a rejected father. Both relationships have the capacity to generate the deepest and most fulfilling love we can enjoy at human level. Both likewise have the capacity to generate the deepest and most agonizing experience of grief and anger when they are abused and betrayed. When love is betrayed, there is a perfectly appropriate response of jealousy and anger. Not blind rage, but open-eyed rejection and repulsion of whatever or whoever has invaded the relationship and threatened its peace and joy. What continually has invaded the relationship between the Israelites and Yahweh? Idols. And what are the idols? Spiritual adultery. That's what we have here. It is a, it's strange. Now, this, he goes on to say that some theologians and preachers see something incompatible or irreconcilable in the Bible portrayal of God's anger and God's love. Anger and love can coexist simultaneously in a human heart. Why not in God's heart? Argument number one. The second argument comes from a scholar by the name of Klein Snodgrass. And this was his commentary on Ephesians, because Ephesians 2 talks about the wrath of God. Okay. Does God get angry is the question. 
The idea of God's wrath causes problems for us in the 21st century. It seems theologically unsophisticated and offensive. How can a loving God get angry? Yet in some ways, the Bible from Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation is the story of the wrath of God, of God's reaction to both disobedience and sin. Is God a doting parent who ignores wrongdoing? In reality, the wrath of God is an essential doctrine, and here's why. Wrath and judgment are the presupposition to, of salvation. If God does not have wrath, salvation is not needed. The cross gets relegated to a mere example. What was the point of it? But here's the thing. Here's the second point. Careless language about God's wrath leaves the impression that God is angry at us. But Christ loves us. And he gains God's favor for us by dying on the cross. The cross does not gain God's favor back. Rather, God's favor was the basis for Jesus' death. Where does that come from? Romans 5.8 reminds us that God demonstrated his love in sending Christ while we were still sinners. He still loved us. So no division exists between the wrath of God and the love of God. Love is not the opposite of wrath. As difficult as this may be to conceive, the wrath of God is an expression of his love and deep attachment to his people. If God can look at sin and injustice in this world and not get angry, he's not much of a God. The God of the Bible is not some unmovable, unfeeling force but a God who cares. Okay, here's the close. And you're going to follow this because you now know the redemptive story, right? The story of the Bible is the story of God himself taking action to keep his anger from destroying us. He didn't do it after the fall. He didn't do it in the wilderness. He sets up the sacrificial system so that we can come into his presence. The prophets, he sends them out to call them back. You'll see that in the next coming weeks in the exile and return. And of course, his greatest work, the cross. God was at work dealing with his own anger and showing mercy at the same time. Yes, God gets angry, but he cares deeply, and his anger is both an expression of his love and the context in which his love is demonstrated. You think you can resolve that in 10 minutes? What do you think of the arguments? Can you use any of this? Because you know you're going to hear it. Thank you. I, I know that's something you can't get resolved in 10 minutes or less. But I hope that the arguments that are out there, because this judgment is going to happen. And this destruction is going to happen. And exile is, is coming. So how do you resolve that? And I hope that these were some attempts to, be, to see God's character and what's going on. So I thank you um, for discussing that. So I'll tell you what I think. The bottom line for tonight is I think they did make the argument. So I think God's wrath is a function of his love for us. But I say this with a degree of confidence because I believe I can offer empirical proof, proof that you can witness. And the proof for that statement is... 
we still exist. <laughs> Would it have been really easy for God to get rid of the problem? We're the problem. So do you see what God is revealing about himself in this story? The story of the Bible is the story of God taking action to keep his anger from destroying us. But that's what he's doing. Because he loves us and he's passionate for us. And why is he doing this? Because he wants the same response from us in that once we know him, that we will love him passionately and we will want to follow him. How many times have you been asked, what is your passion? You know, the answer from all of us should be, that's not the right question. It's who is my passion. It's Jesus Christ. Okay, I, this was heavy. And I want to thank you all for hanging in there for this part. So let's get to the hope in restoration. There is a recurring theme in scripture, and it has to do with types of blessing. Let's go all the way back to Genesis before the fall. God offers these blessings to Adam and Eve. Would somebody please read this from Genesis 1? God blessed them and told them, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Be masters over the fish and birds and all the animals. And God said, look, I have given you the seed-bearing plants throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. Thank you. Two blessings here, offspring and the land. So why do you think God offers these blessings even before the fall? What do they do? Yeah, so why, why, give, why give those two people those two blessings? Why did Adam and Eve need land, land and offspring? Well, to continue to live the human race, for one. Yes. And to have a place to do it. Yes. It's, right. And before the fall, it was going to be flourishing. Indeed. So it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Sometimes the Bible really does just make common sense. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. But after the fall, let's see what happens to these blessings. Would somebody please read this? First to Eve, then to Adam. You will bear children with intense pain and suffering. And to Adam he said, I have placed a curse on the ground. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. Thank you. So here God doesn't take away the blessings, but they're under the curse. In this period of creation, it ends at Genesis 11, where are we at the end of Genesis 11? The nations have turned against God. Remember, we want to make a name for ourselves. There was no place for God at that point. But how does God respond? Mercifully. What does he do? He calls Adam. And chapter 7 opens with the call of Adam. God is putting his redemptive plan into action. And now we're in the period of Abraham. And during this period, he makes a covenant with Abraham. And what does he promise him? Yes. Yes. And there are the scriptures to back that up. Yes. Descendants, as many as the stars in the night, and he promises in the land. The promise is repeated to the patriarchs. And in the Sinai period, the people will eventually enter the promised land, they'll inhabit it, and there'll be many descendants of Abraham. But tonight, we're in the period of the kings. And at the closing of this period, judgment through exile. 
what do you think the people lose when they go into exile? The land. And what happens to their offspring? They're subject to what? Yes. Yes. So the northern land went to the Assyrians, and their children were deported and sent out throughout the whole empire, intermarried, and they become the Samaritans. In the southern kingdom, Babylon's going to come, and their offspring are subject to the rulers. The exile is, is tragic. But the reassuring words of hope that Jeremiah is telling them in chapters 30 through 33 have to do with telling the people, God's going to restore your land and your offspring. So would somebody please read this passage in Jeremiah 30? Let's hear what God's going to do. But the Lord says this, when I bring you home again from your captivity and restore your fortunes, Jerusalem will be rebuilt on her ruins. The palace will be reconstructed as it was before. There will be joy and songs of thanksgiving, and I will multiply my people and make of them a great and honored nation. Their children will prosper as they did long ago. I will establish them as a nation before me, and I will punish anyone who hurts them. Thank you, Ashley. Do you see how deliberate everything is through here? From Genesis in the garden to what happens in the exile, the land and the offspring. Now you notice in these verses, he speaks of a near-term restoration in part of them. Because we're going to see before we end this part of the academy, we're going to go into the exile and the restoration. Judah will go into exile and 70 years later they're going to be sent back to their land. But it's certainly not the fullness of the restoration that's in this, ch this chapter, or this verse. So here's the thing. When you read the prophets, it's challenging, and it's not you. The best way to read the prophets is to read the prophets with a good study Bible or a good commentary. Because here's what they do. They speak about several restorations, both near-term, as here, and not yet fulfilled, and they do it simultaneously. And the distinction's not always made clear. In the famous Christmas verse, Isaiah 9-6, the child came, but we're still waiting for the government to rest on his shoulders, right? All there in what? In a matter of two verses. So prophets speak of both near-term and yet to come. Jeremiah's message is a message of hope for Judah in this passage. But if we continue to read, we're going to see more. Let's take a look at what goes on in Jeremiah 31. You're also going to be familiar with these verses. Thank you for doing the reading. I appreciate that. This is what the Lord says. A cry of anguish is heard in Ramah, mourning and weeping unrestrained. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her children are dead. But now the Lord says, do not weep any longer, for I will reward you. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. Thank you. To whom was Rachel married? Jacob. Israel. And Israel was another name for him, correct. Jacob had 12 sons. How many did Rachel have? <coughs> Two. Two. Who were they? Joseph and, Joseph and Benjamin, great. When the promised land was settled, Joseph did not get one allotment of land. Actually, he got two. 
both of his sons received an allotment. One was Manasseh, not the king that we're talking about here, and the other one it was Ephraim. In the northern kingdom, there were 10 tribes. Manasseh and Ephraim were two of those tribes. And Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was made up of two tribes, Judah and Rachel is the representative mother of all Israel. There's a future restoration coming. See, when, when you know the meaning of these historical details, God's revelation becomes richer. And let's go one more step. Who are the spiritual um, offspring of Ab Abraham, according to Romans? We are. Are we home? Are we in the promised land? No. In a sense, aren't we in exile also in this world? While we're waiting for our Lord to return and establish the new heaven and earth, our forever home, the hope and restoration Yahweh gives to Israel through Jeremiah is not yet completed. Remember, none of the covenants are fulfilled when the Old Testament closes. So when we're finished in April, we're still going to be waiting. I believe our timeline in the New Testament calls this yet to come. And remember this. Our story doesn't have an end. It has a fulfillment. And this is what it looks like. Would somebody please read that? And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now among his people. For the old world and its evils are gone forever. Thank you. This is a glimpse of our restoration. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? So why are we still here? Because the mission of God is not completed. Judah didn't understand the purpose of their election. As a result, they failed their mission. To them, all the pillars were to serve them by ensuring right standing before God, as well as their national safety. That's what they thought. So once again through Jeremiah, Israel's being called to abandon their idols, to serve and worship Yahweh exclusively, and to live ethically as described in the law. If they kept the covenant, they would have accomplished all these things. Wright says, the mission of the one true God calls people to be committed exclusively to know him. That's a disciple. And to make him known. That's how we make disciples. And to live in this world in ethical distinctiveness. That's how we're the light. He also states the need for Israel to return to their covenant faith was not just a matter of believing in the right God. That's what this is not all about. Believe in me and that's it. No, it was an essential part of the very reason for their existence. They were to serve the mission of God. They were to make him known to the nations. They failed. Hence the exile. But the exile is not God's last word. All this prepares the way, doesn't it? The fulfillment of God's mission through Israel is accomplished in Jesus Christ. And now, our mission, right? The church's mission in the power of the Holy Spirit is to share the message of the gospel to draw the nations to Christ. Would somebody read this from Matthew? Thank you. And the good news about the kingdom was preached throughout the whole 
Thank you. So do you realize that God was and, and is a globalist? So one of the Academy's foundation verses is the Great Commission. This week, we were asked to read Acts 2. Since Luke wrote both the Gospel and the Book of Acts, let's look at the commission through Luke's eyes. Would somebody please read Luke 24? And let's listen to what it is. Now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Thank you. And where this gospel ends, Acts picks right up since it's the same author. So what do we see in Acts 1? Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you what he promised. Remember, I have told you about this before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Thank you. So now what's the scope of the mission for the church? Would somebody please read Acts 8, 1, 8. But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and tell people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Thank you. And this week, we read about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. But here's the thing. Um, I have a confession. And the best way for me to explain this is through a metaphor. Suppose I were to tell you, I have a winning lottery ticket right here in my pocket. And you might say, good for you. And I say, no, you don't understand. What I have here is a Powerball jackpot ticket. And even after taxes, it's worth millions. To which you might say, OK, um, that could be pretty life-changing. What do you intend to do with it? And I say, nothing. It's enough for me just to know I'm holding on to the ticket. That's all I need. Well, who does this? Well, I do when it comes to the Holy Spirit. You see, I don't tap into his power to fulfill God's mission. I know he's there, and that's enough for me. I relegate him to a pillar, just like Israel did, for given for my spiritual benefit, just like Israel did with their pillars. So for our last table discussion, I'm kind of asking for some help. And I'm hoping that we can brainstorm. Here's the thing. Let's start, right? How do we take the concept of the Great Commission and we put it into application for today? I have some questions. Like, like was it, how, how, have you ever shared the gospel? How was it shared with you? Have you seen somebody do it? What ways? Because that's what we're here about, right? Eventually, we're going to know how to take these wonderful ideas, this great commission. Israel failed. We don't want to. We have the spirit. So let's start brainstorming, because I would love to hear your ideas at the end of this. And we'll take about 10 minutes, and then we'll close. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you. And I, I'm sincere. Does anybody want to share? And, and let, me, let me say this. If you actually have a, a time when you shared the gospel and, it, and it's successful, you are not boasting. You are encouraging us. So would you share some of these stories? Because we need to hear them. Anybody willing to share? 
So, uh, how have I shared the gospel? Well, uh, one way is Bible study. Uh, at my school, I started preaching to God, uh, well, preaching to people about God. Uh, second way, um, well, I used to game, like, late at night. And uh, on that game, I would preach to many people. Oh. Um, mm. How was it shared? Well, here is the first time that like I really wanted to become a Christian is because of Chris Payne, Pastor Chris, and uh, also my neighbors helped me understand it more. Uh, how have I seen others share it? Chris Payne and the other pastors sharing it. Uh, people like you up here sharing it. Um, I, no one at my school really shares it but myself. Um, do I have other thoughts about how to do this? No. I love it either way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now there's hope for the future right there. Yes. Anyone else? Oh, Liam, we're praying for you. Anyone else? Oh, thank you. Thank you. We have one over here, Beth. Yes. Okay, I'm not sure I've ever told this story. Bob is usually the one who tells it, but we were dating in college, and then we broke up, and then we were talking one night about six weeks after we'd broken up, and I had met the Lord a couple days before this. And so I knew then that I couldn't date a non-Christian. So when he, came, when he came to talk and he said, I'd like to get back together, so I can't date you now. <laughs> I'm a Christian. This is not my recollection of the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I've never had a chance to date my son. <laughs> so, so anyway, I just told, he, he said something was different about me. And I told him that it was because I um, met the Lord and I decided to walk with him. And um, we were seniors in college and I prayed for him before he left. And then um, we got engaged later, two weeks, three, oh, three. Beautiful, thank you. Thank me for Bob Schindler in your life. <laughs> No, so that, that was actually, interesting enough, That was I was drinking beer on uh, St. Patrick's Day on March 17th, oh. and I went to her house, to her, to her uh, room that night. She shared the gospel with me, and the next day I trusted Christ. So oh. get ready to celebrate on the 18th my spiritual birthday. So, oh, thank yeah. you for sharing. And, and that was just like a couple years ago, right? Yeah, just oh, a yeah, few. Yes. Oh. This is great. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. This isn't a story about me as much as it is about how I saw God working through another person. I had a patient who was elderly. She was about 85, very decrepit, very poor. She was black. She was disadvantaged in any way you could possibly be disadvantaged. But she volunteered her time teaching at her church with the young children. And every time I saw her, I noticed how happy she was. And finally, I just said to her one day, I said, you know, you've got a bad hip, you've got horrible knees, you can hardly walk, you've got 
you've got all this wrong with you and you're always so happy. Why is that? She looked at me and she said, well, first I had to forgive the drunk driver who hit me. <gasps> That's what she said. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's showing the Lord through somebody else. Yes, indeed. Thank you. That's powerful. Thank you. Wow. Yes, sir. This, this also is someone else uh, within the last month. Um, we had the privilege of going to Israel. And as we were somewhere over southeastern Europe, 39,000 feet, my thing said, and it was 85 below, so fortunately I had a coat. Um, there was a conversation that took place behind us. Uh, we had a, a group of about 50 that were going, and most of us were on this flight. And uh, so... A Jewish man sitting beside a woman who's a Christian and was asking her, you know, what are you doing going to Israel? You know, and she told him and we could hear everything. It was it was a neat conversation and he the conversation got around to well, who exactly is Jesus? is what he was asking. Now, there were a lot of Orthodox Jews on the plane. He was not one of them, but he was Jewish and he was a religious Jew in some capacity. Um, and she patiently went through and just gave the most beautiful gospel presentation starting with who is, who is uh, Jesus and what did he do and what does that mean um, she planted seeds you know she had to leave it with him that way you know it wasn't like let's him saying oh well I want you know it wasn't that kind of thing but she planted seeds at 39,000 feet and um, but it was quite a, quite a conversation, wasn't it? You remember hearing it. She got to a couple of tough Okay. She got to a couple of tough parts. She says, Don, wasn't it? Give me the easy ones. hard things. But it was really amazing to take advantage of a situation like that. Especially the Jews. And to be ready. On the way to Israel. That's a great story. Thank you. Anyone else? These are great, and they're different, and they're wonderful. Yes. So uh, shortly after un undergrad, I spent a year living in Asheville, and I, I didn't know anyone, so I had potluck roommates. And uh, one of my roommates, he, uh, he was from uh, Pittsburgh, uh, raised very uh, worldly, um, spiritual, but uh, his family didn't practice any anyone religion. And he loves studying religions and, and just uh, kind of picking out his truths from each one and, and really gravitated towards uh, Buddhist teachings. And um, he, he just uh, kind of like picked up on, I was going to church every Sunday and just kind of wanted to hear more about my, my background. And I just uh, talked to him about my, my like family history and faith background and, and, um, and, and the gospel high level and it, it planted a seed and uh, the really cool thing was uh, maybe seven eight years ago he tracked my uh, contact info down I haven't seen this guy in years and he uh, he let me know he became a believer Aww. and um, was thankful that I was part of his faith story it was it was so humbling because all of our uh, stories were just very relational I wasn't like trying to convert him or, or anything like transactional. It was just very much like this is my story, and and it just like let him help him lead him down this journey, which is really cool. And did you hear that? 
Your stories are powerful. You have them for a reason. Thank you. That was great. Anyone else? These are. Thank you. And if the spirit's tugging, we have a microphone. Um, so I, I love telling the story um, because it shows God's faithfulness over a long period of time. Um, but when I was a uh, freshman in college, I um, had a friend um, who didn't know, who wasn't a Christian, um, didn't really know um, very much about Jesus. And uh, I landed up inviting her to um, study through the book of John with me for a couple weeks and maybe a month. Um, and then we got to the end of those like four weeks and I was like, Hey, do you want to keep going with this? And she was like, yes. And so we studied like for the rest of the semester, um, through some gospels and, um, we got to summer and, uh, she was like, thanks. That was great. Have a good summer. And I like never really connected with her again. Um, and then, uh, we found each, found each out that we were back in the same city in Charlotte. This is like 10 years later. And, um, she like texted me on my birthday and was like, and we had contacted each other a few times in between, but, um, yeah, she had just said, yeah, I'm, this isn't for me right now. Um, but then when she got back in touch with me, she was like, Hey, Alyssa, I just wanted to let you know, like, I'd love to go to dinner or whatever. And then she told me that she had become a Christian. Um, and that, that was like, our conversations were some of the first ones that she had had. Um, and just, I wasn't the one like to lead her to Christ, but, um, just so sweet. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, exactly. That's like the whole thing is like, you just don't know what seeds you're planting. Um, and so, yeah, in my mind, I would have loved for her to become a Christian in like 2013. Right. But it <laughs> took so much longer for the Lord to, to keep doing work and for her to say yes. So anyway, thank you for sharing two stories where the people came back to tell you that's really neat. These are great Isn't stories. That so great. I feel like we don't get to often see the fruit of what we're doing and like the small obedience um, of every day. But the Lord is so faithful um, to just give you glimpses of it sometimes, you know, and just like I treasure that in my heart. So oh. I'm so thankful for that. Thank you. And think about it. How does heaven become that full? We do our work, right? We're all part of it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. Next week. Judah does go into exile. But remember, God has a purpose for everything. So let's close with a prayer of hope. May the God of hope fill each one of us with all of his joy and peace so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that you count us worthy to be called into your mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. It was a lot of reading. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.